I'm Bridget Schulte, and this is Better Life Lab. This season on Better Life Lab, we're taking a hard look at the future of work and well-being in America. So much of what we hear about this scary future of work seems almost like attack of the killer robots. Like, oh my God, the robots are coming. They don't take weekends. They don't take vacation. They don't get hurt and file for workers' comp. They don't form unions or take their daughters to work. They didn't even have daughters. They're tireless, they're smart, and the robots are going to take away our jobs. So then what? What will we, the people, actually do? How will we live? That's one big reason I wanted to talk with David Otter. He's an economist at MIT. He's a fast talker and a brilliant analyst of the American workplace. He's co-chaired MIT's Task Force on the Work of the Future, and he writes about building better jobs in an age of smart machines. As David and I got talking, it became clear he's got a different perspective on AI and automation. He says it's not the robots we really need to worry about. David Otter joins us after this. On this episode of Better Life Lab, we're looking at work stress, automation, and the future of work, and what that means for workers, human workers. And to help us think this through, we're talking to MIT economist David Otter. He's one of the real thought leaders on this. So David, you say it's not the robots we need to worry about. Can you tell me what it is that we do need to be worrying about? People talk all the time about it's running out of jobs, but there's nothing that looks like that at the moment going on. Mm -hmm. However, that doesn't mean there's nothing to worry about. What is really problematic is the quality and distribution of work. You know, jobs and advanced economies look more and more like a kind of a barbell with increasing kind of poundage on either end of the bar. On one hand, you have professional and technical and managerial work mm -hmm. that's well remunerated, it's creative. But and, and these are a, these are the workers who've been able to say work from home or work remotely and for uh, sure. They're the ones that might now have hybrid work or distributed work kind of options. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, uh, we have growth of uh, basically personal services, food service, cleaning, home health care. Mm -hmm. This kind of hands-on work. Uh, so it's quite valuable, right? It could be security, it could be a crossing guard, you know, th uh, daycare. But it tends to be poorly remunerated because mm -hmm. it uses relatively generic skills that most people have, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, even though what could be more important than caring for a child most adults would say, well, I could, I could do childcare. I don't need to go to school for that. Or I could be a crossing guard, whatever. On the other hand, what has, has declined substantially is a lot of the middle skill, middle paid work. And mm -hmm. that's traditional bread and butter of high school educated workers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that work has really been displaced by automation. Mm -hmm. You know, bookkeeping or filing or copying or answering phones or, or working on a production line. Because that work is well described by a set of formal procedures, mm -hmm. it's been relatively easy over the last four decades to codify it in computer code and have machines execute it. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't describe very well the, either the professional, technical, and managerial work or a lot of the in-person service work that requires yeah. flexibility, common sense. Uh, empathy, compassion, exactly. connectedness, communication, yeah? Absolutely. So this kind of barbell means that many people who in an earlier era would have been in these kind of middle-skill, middle-class jobs Instead, they're pushed more into these generic, insecure, low-paid service jobs mm -hmm. where you're probably about as productive as you're going to be after six months as you will be over the rest of your career. Mm. 
right? You're not actually getting better. It's not your fault. <laughs> Just the job has only has so much headroom. Mm-hmm. But that means your wages are never going to be very high because, you know, someone else can show up and do your job in a few months. Right. right? You're, dis- so you're, you're disposable you're not or replaceable to organization. Right. So this is a big problem. Well, so at this point, what I'd love to do is share a story of uh, a gentleman named Joe Liebman. Mm-hmm. And um, he is the product. Uh, I suppose his story really exemplifies exactly what we're talking about. I acquired a job back in 1993 with the uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch as a uh, mm-hmm. zone manager. We distributed a free paper that was filled with all of the advertisements that you could get in your paid subscription. They were always yeah. big, thick papers. Business was very good throughout the 90s. I started a family with a wonderful woman. Everything was going great. And then um, Pulitzer sold out to the Lee Corporation in 2008. And um, they asked our people to cut the budget. My numbers were decent. I was I was very good at my job. You know, I was very close to my boss, but he never let me know any bad news. And uh, January the 9th of 09. He said we were having a meeting. I walked in. The uh, new owner of Pulitzer was sitting there, and the president of my company was sitting there, and they told me that my services were no longer needed. So the day that you get the news and they say there is no more room for you here, right. what was your life like? Where were you living? How many kids did you have? Tell me what happened after that. I lived in a very nice house in uh, in Midtown, Webster Groves. For those of you familiar with the St. Louis area, it's very nice. My children all went to a very nice uh, public high school in St. Louis, and they loved it. Literally had a two-story house with a big oak tree in front of it and a white picket fence. This is, um, this is why I work hard. You know, this is why I do it. The kids were having a blast. I was working hard, but it was always worth it. So then what happened? When they, when they laid me off, you know, I got unemployment, which was fine, but never enough. And um, things started getting tight. I spent a lot more time around the family and, well, around around the wife. And, um, you know, I could feel the screws tightening. You know, I was, it was getting worse and worse as the money was dwindling. My savings was going down and the unemployment wasn't going to do it. It's, um, it's a pressure like I've never felt. Unemployment was ungodly high back then. Right, it in, was the, still right in the middle high. of the, the Great Recession when everybody yes, was out of work. Exactly. So not everybody, but so many people. Uh, you know, I searched and I went through everything I could and just did not get any responses. You know, my, my kids and the wife, we still had to eat and carry insurance and, and your daily life goes on. Mm-hmm. But you can see the savings dwindling and the check not coming in. Unemployment was barely enough to feed our family. We had we had five at home, so as my wife yeah. and five children at home, it it was not good. I was uh, I was forty six year old man, and I ended up uh, working with friends in the moving industry. Believe it or yeah. not, they put me in charge of a truck, and I had three twenty five year olds that were strong as oxes, and we'd go out on a moving job. And the moving industry is you know only the owners are making any money. You know, you come home every day after working hard and your wife reminds you that, you know, the electric bill is due and you don't have the money in the bank. Were you thinking, oh, this is just a blip. I'll be able to get back to work. I'll be able to find something. Or were you beginning to lose lose hope? I began to panic probably around 
June or July. So I was in it for about five months. I thought I could find something. You know, I saw a lot of jobs on career builders and I was like, eh, I could probably call these guys up. I can send them resumes when they didn't respond and you stay home and you watch the news and you hear about the depression and the recessions and the price of everything. You, um, you start to get a little depressed and you start to, uh, you start to panic. We, we lost our home in, in Webster Groves. It was bought off of the uh, county courthouse steps. It was too painful to go. I wasn't going to go and watch. Um, I watched them level the house, tear the tree down. They put up a $550,000 house. They put that up in about 10 or 12 weeks, and they sold it before it was done being built. Wow. What what happened? What happened to your what happened to your marriage? Oh, the marriage went. Yeah, uh, as the as the screws were tightening, um, was it really the the kind of the financial pressures that really broke you up? Yeah, if if the financial noose wasn't getting so tight on my neck, I I think we could have stayed together. I mean, we we had been married for fourteen years. If I had found a comparable job mm-hmm. in St. Louis for for the you know high 40s, mid 50s that I was making. Yeah, we would have stayed. We would have made it. So David, Mm. here's Joe's story. And he had this great middle-class life, you know, working in newspapers and distribution. And we all know what's happened to newspapers, you know, as the internet came along and took over classified ads, then revenue started shrinking and layoffs, uh, you know, have been ubiquitous. And here is someone who talk about a, a real fall. We talk about hollowing out the middle class in a very theoretical sense. This is his life. He's now fallen to, to some pretty low rungs of the ladder. You know, is this more of what we can expect in the future of work? I mean, first of all, that's a really tough story, and it's very sad to hear. Um, so often you, you hear examples of, you know, well, I used to do this thing and now it can be done. You know, I, no one needs a typist anymore or no one needs you know, someone to answer phones because there's a machine that does that. That's not the case here. It's that the whole business model of how information is collected and distributed and so on has totally changed. Mm-hmm. You know, so how might that have gone differently in a different country? You might ask that would, might be one way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In most countries, unemployment benefits are much longer term. And they're much more generous. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, in Germany, you would probably get a, a replacement rate of about two-thirds rather than a half is what you get in the United States, a, a maximum of a half, lower in many places. Mm. And uh, in the U.S., it might typically last about 13 weeks, whereas in Germany, it would it would last for, you know, typically about a year. Wow. Uh, the other thing that the U.S. doesn't have that you might encounter elsewhere is what are called active labor market policies directed at retraining people. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Denmark— People don't have an expectation of lifetime employment there, mm. uh, and it's actually very easy to dismiss workers. Um, but the but it's also the case that the country is set up to reactivate people, and so there's a huge amount of reinvestment in workers. So the expectation is not security through the same job; it's security through continual employment. Mm. And so mm-hmm. when people are dismissed or you know made redundant, is the term that would typically be used. The state steps in to provide income support, but also to redirect them towards new new work. Mm. And often that involves some degree of retraining. And so, you know, the U.S. is really has very minimal kind of standard organized facility for retraining people and getting them back into the labor force. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of economic and psych- psychological research shows that, you know, job loss is, is extremely 
damaging to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just income loss. It's loss of kind of self-esteem, of a sense of purpose. It makes people feel like someone you're in love with just telling you, I, actually, I hate you. I'm leaving you, right? Sort of like your job <laughs> is doing that to you. Uh, and so people go into a state of depression. Uh, mortality risk rises. It's very damaging to people. So it's not just the income loss. Uh, it's the whole psychological trauma of it. And one consequence of that is it, it actually stands in the way often of people getting back into work. Which, I guess, which all begs the question, why do we do it this way? Yeah. Why do we do it this way when there's so much research that shows how doing it a different way is actually better for people? It's actually better for the economy. You mentioned Denmark. I've read about their, what is it called, Flex Security Program. Flex Security, you know? that's the term they and, use, yeah. And what's so interesting is that they're beloved by you know politicians on the left because of the social safety supports and the retraining. They're also right. beloved by those on the right who you know want businesses to have the ability to hire and fire at will. It seems like in the United States, you know, we want businesses to be able to hire and fire at will, but then, then you're really on your own, aren't you? Uh, yes. I mean, I don't want to say that uh, there are no trade-offs in the world, right? I mean, if, if you want to be Denmark, right, you have to accept much higher tax rates. Right. We have many, many ports of entry. Yeah. Right? The U.S. Is, is really a country that gives you more choices, both good and bad, more opportunities to succeed, more opportunities to fail. And also we pay lower tax rates. The government can do less because we're not willing to pay for more. Right. So I, I, so I'm not. I don't think everybody in the U.S. would just vote to become Denmark if they just watched the documentary that says what it's like. Um, <laughs> so you know, I, I might prefer that, but I, I don't want to say that it's it's universally desirable. If I were to be really rich, I would want to be in the U.S. Probably. If I wanted to, if I didn't think I was going to be so affluent, I would probably want to be somewhere else. Hmm. Uh, but it is the case that many people in the U.S. who are not affluent think the U.S. system is the best system. Mm-hmm. But in fact. Many voters who are not high-income voters, they're very socially conservative, and they, they don't like that much sort of government involvement in their day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. It would be hard to get from where we are to somewhere else very different. Um, it might be worth doing, uh, but it, it wouldn't be just flipping a switch. You're listening to Rage Against the Machine, episode one in our new season of Better Life Lab. This season, we're looking at the future of work and well-being. We're examining American workplace stress and the norms and trends that so often leave workers trading their health and even their lives for a paycheck. We'll be back with more from MIT economist David Otter after this. Welcome back to Better Life Lab. So, David, you were talking about, you know, the choices that we make, yeah. and we've we've made certain choices in the United States. Um, you know, one of the things that has really struck me, though, when you talk about what's coming next, uh, you know, there will be jobs destroyed by automation. Sure. There will be new jobs that will be created that we can't even imagine what they would be. And the real question is, will these new jobs be big enough to sustain life? And so I'd like to go back to Joe's story. Ten-plus years after the Great Recession, after you lost that really good job, what are you doing now? Right now, I I work in a warehouse. Um, I work in a fulfillment house, which is an Amazon wannabe. I am a picker. I I work the first shift from 5.30 to 2 o'clock. What I do is I pick orders that come over the Internet 
for our clients. And the uh, we, we are fortunate enough that uh, we pick off of robots. Our robots are automatic transporters, and they're almost in the shape of a shopping cart. My company does, it sounds kind of funny, but my company does uh, yarn, and this robot is programmed to know every square inch of our 375,000 square foot warehouse. It tells us which yarn to pick, where it is, and where to put it. And that's what I do. I will stop, grab the product, the robot scans it for me, I put it in front of the laser reader, I put it in the tote, hit the button, and we go on to the next pick. Compared to your job of a decade ago, <laughs> how much do you how much do you make? Uh, are you able to you know pay your bills? Uh, do you have benefits? What what kind of job is it? I I do have benefits. I have uh, I have medical benefits for my youngest son and I, but my deductible on my insurance now is seventy six hundred dollars. Um, Wait, is how much? Seventy six hundred. You put in that much money before the company starts paying 100%. It's, it's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. And I know I pay, let's say it's $50 a check is $200 a month for my insurance. And how, and how, much, how much do you earn? I make $17.50 an hour after five years with the company. So, David, uh, Joe has been with this company for several years. He's gotten a $0.50 cent an hour a year pay raise. Um, he uh, So he's earning $17.50 an hour. He does have health insurance, but as you heard, the deductible is so astronomically high to make you almost wonder if it's even worth having health insurance. And he started out as a warehouse worker, as a temp worker, because he needed insurance, and that's what got him there. And now he lives in an 800-square-foot apartment all by himself. He's in his late 50s. He walks six, seven, eight miles a day following a robot on a concrete floor. And uh, he thinks this is as good as it's going to get for him. Yeah, so he's obviously doing hard work uh, and you know, physically demanding and takes all his attention and time. But the skill set is generic in the sense that most able-bodied adults could probably do that work you know, after a little bit of training. And that means it's, it's going to tend not to pay well. You know, like, for example, Amazon warehouses, you know, paying 15 bucks an hour. That's good. That's, a, you know, $30,000 a year, but it's not going anywhere. There is no career ladder out of an Amazon warehouse. Mm-hmm. Amazon doesn't even want you to be in that job for that long. They don't expect that. They give you money to go to college to go do something else, right? Yeah. There is no pathway from shelf box stuffer to Jeff Bezos, right? That's like, doesn't exist. And that's the problem that Joe is facing that a lot of adults are facing, mm-hmm. is if you don't have a specialized skill set, you're often in this kind of generic work world where, mm-hmm. you know, your capabilities are valuable to a point, right? There's a reason there's a person doing that work, not a robot. But it's although it's a hard job for a machine to do, it's most able-bodied adults can do it. Yeah. And therefore, there's, a lim- there's an upper limit on what it's going to pay. Mm-hmm. And this is the challenge, is that a lot of the middle skill work previously present was work in which you learn by doing and you gain experience and you became more valuable. Right. Now, I don't want to paint a picture where the machines came and changed this, and that's that's just the way it is. Right. Many countries face the same headwinds, the same technological challenges, the same globalization pressures, the same aging of the population, the same rising educational levels, immigration, so on. But in the U.S. is a kind of the extreme of kind of cowboy capitalism. Mm-hmm. The quality of those jobs, of those in-person service jobs, mm-hmm. is much lower in the United States than it would be in Sweden or in Denmark or in Norway or in Germany. Wages are much lower here for similar work. 
at the bottom. They're higher at the top. Right. Um, there's no expectation of you know guaranteed health insurance, of paid vacation, sick leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might not know your hours a week in advance. You might not know how many hours you're going to get that week. Right. Those things are much, much more common in the United States than in other high-income countries. Sweden or Norway or Austria that are much closer to what you know I would call cuddly capitalism. Cuddly, it's still cuddly a market economy. Capitalism. <laughs> um, but, but there's, there's still a market economy. But there are a lot more guardrails. So if we choose to do nothing, if we if we just say this is cowboy capitalism and this is just the way it is and this is the way we are, these are the norms and policies in the United States. What you've described is that we will have not only a workforce, like those barbells, like heavy inequality, if you will, heavy on the higher end and heavy on the low end, but you say we could have a society of the servers and the served. And that's to me, sounds terrifying. That sounds like Blade Runner. Well, I mean, that's like most of human society through most of history, right? It's, you know, it's <laughs> the, the, the lords and the uh, and the serfs, right? Right, uh, yeah. You know, there are a lot of Central American countries that look a lot like that, right? Where the right. wealth is extremely concentrated and most everybody else is basically serving. So, you know, how did we ever get to be anywhere different from that? Why wasn't it like that, you know, 50 years ago? Mm-hmm. What, what has changed? Yeah. And... It's also the case that our institutional structures have changed a lot. Mm. And a lot of the improvement in the quality of work, especially blue-collar work, came about because of uh, labor organization. Mm-hmm. You know, the five-day work week didn't happen on its own. The 40-hour right. week didn't happen on its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the kind of pre-war era, it was much more of a Wild West. And improvements in the quality of work was partly accomplished through kind of renegotiation of the social contract, mm-hmm. uh, often by force, mm-hmm. uh, or at least by aggressive negotiations. Mm-hmm. You know, the government used to have these big labor negotiator positions, <laughs> something you haven't heard about in a while. Right. Um, and so because the last four decades have been so abysmal, in my opinion, for people without college educations, you know, I'm a lot more sympathetic towards really aggressive actions that need to happen to increase labor's bargaining power. You know, I don't think all strikes are a good thing. I don't think all unionization is necessarily beneficial. But we've reached a point where the majority of people have not benefited much from all the productivity growth uh, that we've experienced since 1980. Mm. Yeah, you see all of these benefits, you know, wonderful productivity. But you're right. How do we share the prosperity? It's a real question. That's the challenge. I mean, you know, people say, look, imagine we had a world where machines did all the work for us. Right. However, who would own those machines? Mm-hmm. Right now, the main mechanism we have for allocating resources is labor scarcity. You have labor, it's valuable, you sell it. But if labor scarcity were eliminated, well, I mean, we're rich because we, you know, we don't have, you know, we don't even need to work. There's, you know, everything is done by machines. However, if you don't have scarce labor, what is your claim on the, that output? Mm-hmm. And so it creates an enormous distributional challenge. It's, it's not that one couldn't think of a way to do it. It's that whether we could agree on it and put in place the social mechanisms that would get people to play along with that. Uh, I think that's really, really a challenging problem. Now, one positive development right now is we are in this period of labor scarcity after the pandemic. Yeah. It came about much faster than anyone was expecting, but that has changed the labor negotiating environment a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, wages are rising at 12% per year in food and hospitality work, which is double the rate of inflation. 
the unemployment rate is extremely low, even though uh, not everyone has returned to work yet. And of course, there's much more labor union activity than we've seen in decades right. happening now. Yeah. If that means that we're going to see employers having to work harder to attract workers, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm moderately optimistic that we're in an inflection point where there's really a, a change in the way this is happening. But I'm not sure. We don't know how long this will last. Take a short break. When we return, David Otter describes a surprising and bold effort led by America's farm states. It successfully transformed our society a hundred years ago, and it could serve as a model for the challenges we're facing today. Stay with us. It's Better Life Lab. I'm Bridget Schulte. On this first installment of our new 10-episode season on the future of work and well-being, I'm talking with David Otter. He's vice president of the American Economic Association, among many other things, and he's written about a fascinating chapter in American history that might offer a glimmer of hope as we grapple with the challenges of automation. It took place more than 100 years ago. The United States was still very much an agricultural economy, but automation had started to transform farm labor. New machines made farming more efficient, and it required fewer and fewer workers. People in America's farm states saw a crisis looming, and they started something known as the high school movement. So before the turn of the 20th century, the late 1800s, early 1900s, people working in farm communities realized that the world was changing and their kids weren't really going to be needed as much on the farm because uh, of you know, automation, because of uh, irrigation, but they weren't necessarily prepared for the next thing. And so, you know, what were their kids going to do if it wasn't in agriculture? Mm -hmm. And so they kind of made a very expensive, somewhat crazy, forward-looking decision, which was to require by law that their kids remain in school until the age of 16, hopefully in the expectation of getting high school degree. And that was a very expensive idea because it meant not only did you have to hire teachers and buy books and build buildings, but on top of that, it meant those kids couldn't work on the farm mm -hmm. <laughs> when they were in school, which actually a big, a big cost. And uh, that decision really helped the U.S. enter the 20th century as the most educated and most productive and most flexible place, you know, to where work could be accomplished anywhere in the world at that point. It put us way ahead. Wow. Um, and the states that led that movement were the agricultural states. Mm -hmm. uh, they saw this change faster and they invested. They made it. It was a big investment in the next generation. The movement out of agriculture and into industry went relatively well mm -hmm. uh, because industry was expanding at that time, right? It was basically, you know, mass production was a way, was it successful in taking people up very high levels of formal education and making them very productive. Day breaks in the east and a mighty army rises. Not an army marching to the deep and desolating roar of shells, but a mighty army of builders who go forth accompanied by the whistles from America's greatest factories. Unfortunately, we don't, we don't have anything like manufacturing now that we just know how to take lots of people and have them do really productive stuff. Yeah, uh, we got warehouse workers, right? Exactly, that's exactly it. And that's, you know, it's, they're valuable to a point, but only to a point. Right. And, and furthermore, that warehouse work won't be here 10 or 15 years from now. That the person who's the picker is just waiting to be automated mm. and companies are making very big investments to automate. So I would be stunned if 15 years from now, that job still exists. Wow. So yeah, so what would it mean now? Well, it's a challenging question because we don't have the same type of burgeoning area of employment growth mm -hmm. 
you know, most of the fastest employment growth sectors are in care work. Right. So in medical services, uh, home health aides, which at present are paid very poorly. Yes. Now you can say, well, let's improve job quality there. And, and I agree. However, it is the case that a lot of the care dollars are ultimately government dollars, mm-hmm. right? They're also it's ultimately being paid for by taxpayers. Mm-hmm. So every time you say, well, let's raise pay in the care sector, you're simultaneously saying, well, let's raise our taxes a bit, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's a lot less fun. <laughs> well, yeah, um, a lot less fun unless you're until you're the one that needs care and can't get it, right? Yeah, or until it's your absolutely. mom that needs care and, can't, and you can't afford it. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. If we want to improve the quality of work more generally, we're going to have to renegotiate the social contract a bit to ensure that jobs that are not the highest paid jobs in the economy still offer a living income, Mm -hmm. offer a reasonable standard of living and a degree of economic security. Right. It's actually foolish not to do that because, you know, those families are having kids and those kids need a future. Right. And so we risk, you know, becoming a very dynastic country Mm. if the circumstances that kids grow up in are so vastly unequal. Uh, you know, how do we maintain the idea that you could just go from rags to riches, that if you just make the right decisions and work hard, you'll, you know, you'll get a break. That may not be true. Mm-hmm. So, so how, I guess, how do we get there? And where is that political will? We can't even get four weeks of paid leave through the Congress at this point. How do we, how do we find the will like so many of those farm states did to invest big in the high school movement? How do we kind of collectively find the will to do it? Yeah, it, it doesn't seem like we're at all, uh, you know, unified enough to really make that kind of stuff happen. I mean, you could, you know, you could say, well, some things, once you do them, they're hard to undo, like Obamacare. So one idea is, well, if you could just get these things through into law, not by regulation, because regulation is always reversible, mm-hmm, <laughs> not by, mm-hmm. you know, but, but into law, they all tend to stick around. People get used to them and they'll accept them as the norm, mm-hmm. right? Like people don't spend a lot of time questioning, well, why do we have Social Security? Why do we have Medicare? Mm-hmm. Right? But those things were incredibly controversial when they were passed in the 1930s. Right. But the problem is that really says we get it done despite the politics of it. So, um, so David, you know, you've heard Joe's story, the sort of fall from grace and cowboy capitalism as the future of work sort of is already here with automation. Are you hopeful about the future? Well, I mean, I... I there, there's enormous potential, and we're going to get a lot more productive. We're going to be able to do a lot more stuff in part because of the technologies we're developing. I think artificial intelligence can be allow us to accomplish many more things. It's going to increase the rate of scientific progress. It's going to raise productivity. There's a lot of mundane work that can be done by machines. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, the potential is there. However, to turn that kind of increasing the size of the pie to increasing everybody's slice, mm-hmm. that requires the social contract. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm afraid of, that we won't accomplish that very well. We're not well positioned to do that. Now, if we look back a century, people, they work many fewer hours per year than they used to, mm-hmm. right? They had, they right. had weekends, they have, you know, they work eight hour days. They work a much smaller percentage of their working lives, right? People would start working when they were, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 1900, and they worked till the day they died, you know, off right. for 65. So in many ways, we have used rising productivity to reduce the amount of work we do and increase the amount of leisure. Mm-hmm. And, and I expect some of that to continue. Mm. So a lot of good things could happen. Most of the challenges that we face are distributional challenges. They're not challenges of what is feasible. It's a challenge of how do we make sure that most people benefit? 
Mm. We're getting an aggregate much, much, much richer, but a lot of people aren't benefiting much from that. And that's the harder problem, because that's a political problem. The market, in earlier times, it tended to solve that a bit better because the market gave us a kind of a, a tailwind behind us, pushing mm. us in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And now it's much more of a headwind. Mm. Uh, it's not working that way. And so to, we want to get there. We're going to have to sort of work collectively to make that happen, to make sure that, that those aggregate growth benefits turn into shared prosperity. Um, and we don't seem well poised politically to do that. David Otter, that's A-U-T-O-R. He's the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT and co-author of the forthcoming book, The Work of the Future, Building Better Jobs in an Age of Smart Machines. The future of work and well-being is the theme of our new season of Better Life Lab. As David Otter makes clear, the future of work is not really about robots. It's about power and inequality and the choices we make. Automation will most assuredly destroy some jobs, but it will create others. So the real question is how we respond to these changes and whether the new jobs we create for people are actually good jobs. I hope you'll join us again next week when we look at work stress and the enormous, even life-shattering problems that can emerge when people have high job demands and little control over their work environments. It can, quite literally, give you a heart attack. All right, I'm gonna ask Dr. Google, right? Like, you know, chest pain, jaw pain, and it's like, these are signs of a heart attack. And I'm like, oh my God. So you had a, you had a, heart, had attack. a heart attack. So I found this And you out. had a heart attack yeah. because of all the stress at work. Yeah. Oh, it was 100% stress caused. For more resources on fairer, healthier work, go to newamerica.org. Click the link for Better Life Lab. On behalf of myself and my producer, David Shulman, many thanks for joining us for episode one of our new season. Please review us on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. Tell your friends in St. Louis and in Denmark, too. Better Life Lab is produced by New America in partnership with Slate. Special thanks to Alicia Montgomery at Slate for all her work with us. Our podcast is sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is committed to improving health and health equity in the United States. In partnership with others, RWJF is working to develop a culture of health rooted in equity that provides every individual with a fair and just opportunity to thrive, no matter who they are, where they live, or how much money they have. For more information, visit www.rwjf.org. And a quick P.S. Joe Liebman is still working his warehouse job, but he's also joined an effort among St. Louis warehouse workers to organize and form a union. He told me that he expects he'll be automated out of his job once engineers figure out how to give robots hands. But he sees a brighter future for his kids. The kids... I am uh, very happy to announce my children all got good educations. They got good starts. They uh, went on to do what they wanted to do. They all make more money than their mother and I, and they are very happy. They have kids of their own now, big houses, you know, for the holidays. I'm in a 800 square foot apartment. Very, very comfortable and very happy. That's all I need. For Better Life Lab, I'm Bridget Schulte.